Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Michigan of Michigan Law in Chicago, uh, joined by my co-host today, Rob Hunt. Uh, and unfortunately, today we are without the services of our other co-host, Jim Marty. Jim is taking a little uh, vacation uh, and hiatus here at the end of the summer, and we uh, wish him well and uh, gets good rest and ready to join us again with good reports uh, from Fish at Dick's, which I know is part of his plans over the next couple of weeks. Rob, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I think Jim is probably resting up uh, for two weeks or so before Dick's just to make sure he's got the energy to really take it on properly. So uh, we'll miss him, but um, <laughs> but I'm sure I'll have all sorts of great stories coming out of Labor Day. Absolutely. Well, after two nights at uh, Deer Creek, I can understand that once you get to our age, you need a little bit longer prep time and a lot longer recovery time. So at any rate, Jim will be our man on the spot. We'll look forward to hearing from him. Uh, so today it'll just be Rob and I, no guests, lots of great talk, uh, some wonderful music stuff, uh, some current Dead & Company stuff, some J-Rad stuff, uh, some uh, big breaking news in the marijuana industry. Uh, we're going to swing back around then for, as Rob says, a dead reprise at the end and talk all about a very, very famous but perhaps not as well-known show uh, that the Dead played back on September 3rd in 1985 in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, it's going to be uh, very, very exciting. It was a great show. I happened to be at the show. Uh, so we'll have lots of good things to say about that. But I think, Rob, that we would be remiss if we did not start this show by paying homage and honor to a guy who many people feel may have been the very best drum player in all of rock and roll. And he certainly was the drum player for the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And that's Charlie Watts, who we just found out about yesterday, passed away at the age of 80. Yeah, I mean, I think that one's a huge blow to the rock and roll community, not just to the Rolling Stones, but but to all of us. And, you know, as you said, like, you know, if you ask me who my favorite band in the world is, you know, it's either Garcia Band or the Grateful Dead. But if you ask me who the best band in the world is, it's the Rolling Stones. And I don't think there's, you know, you can say the Beatles, you can say Zeppelin, you can, you know, throw out your list of who you think are, are the, the greatest, but... You know, if you look at the full catalog of, of what the Rolling Stones did over the last you know fifty plus years, it's hard to argue that you know pound for pound they've reinvented themselves more than any other band has, and they've done it successfully time and time again the entire like all the way through their careers. And Watts was you know he he held it down. He was the uh, the, the the rhythm section for that band the entire way from the inception. And just if you ask other drummers who you have incredible amounts of respect for, whether they're jazz drummers, blues drummers, rock and roll drummers, uh, inevitably Charlie Watts' name comes up. And he had a, a whole uh, history of drumming away from the Rolling Stones as well. A lot of independent work that he did in both blues and jazz and uh, made some really, really great recordings. But I laugh when you say uh, it's the band that invented themselves over and over again and did so so successfully. A group of buddies of mine and I back in 1981 saw them at the JFK Stadium in Philadelphia when they opened the uh, Start Me Up tour. And they came out, and it was the tour when Mick was wearing football jerseys and, and, and football pants the whole tour. The, the Jerry Hall years. Exactly. And, um, you know, they came out, they opened with Under My Thumb, and 30 seconds into it, my buddies and I all looked at each other, and, you know, we were we were helped along where we were mentally at that point, of course. But we looked at each other, and we were like, oh, my God, he sounds so old. They look so old up there. How can this be? God, this... this Thank God we're here. This is probably going to be the end of them. Well, it's the worst prediction in the history of rock and roll because 40, 50 years, 40 years later, they're still going strong, and they were scheduled to play at Jazz Fest this year. Yeah, that, that's the way I felt during the Steel Wheels tour in 89. Where I'm like, you know, are they still doing this? You know, because I always thought of them as being an older band than the Grateful Dead and thought that they just, you know, didn't have the energy anymore. And 
boy, was I wrong. I remember seeing them. I remember seeing them in uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah, at the um, the Rice uh, Eccles Football Stadium. And Mick was, this is in like 1997 or 1998, and Mick was still running the full length back and forth across the stage at full speed while singing. And I was like, my God, that guy's in better shape than most skiers I know. It was just amazing. And he was still doing it. I mean, even in their most recent shows, he still moves around for a guy who, if he hasn't turned 80 yet, he's damn close to it. Uh, that's just incredible. And of course, you know, then you have Keith Richards, who I say continues to defy modern science by still being alive. And yeah. uh, thank God he's a great guitar player and, uh, you know, love having him around and loved his solo stuff and everything, but he really added so much. But yeah, Charlie Watts, he's just sitting in the back there, you know, and I love how he's the guy that they featured on Get Your Yaya's Out, you know, on the cover of that album. I always love that picture of him. He, he was the straight guy, you know, he's, he was the guy that was always sort of wearing the suit and always looked dapper and, you know, didn't have that same reputation as, um, you know, as Mick or Keith or even, uh, you know, Wyman. He was just, uh, you know, sort of an understated behind the scenes guy that just played a perfect time. Yep. And I, I, what I read about him was that he was married to the same woman for pretty much, you know, well, until he died, but throughout his entire Rolling Stones career, you know, which certainly defies the image of the, uh, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones, you know, having their pick of all the women in the world. Not that they did, but apparently, uh, you know, Charlie Watts had found his love and, and he was very content with that and good for him. Well, I think... Um Bill Kreutzman paid a really nice homage to, uh, to Charlie yesterday on Twitter, and I'll read that very quickly. Um, he wrote, Drummers are bonded together by virtue of their instrument, and I'm saddened that today we lost a brother. The last time I saw the Rolling Stones was in the same arena in Oakland where the Grateful Dead had performed many times before. But being in the audience, I got to experience that show as a fan. I even paid for parking. When the Stones brought out Tom Waits to sit on Little Red Rooster, one of my friends reminded me that the Grateful Dead had played that very song in that very room. Charlie had his own feel for it, and I loved it. I always admired his steadfast approach, ability, and style. Rest in peace, brother. Always a favorite. I just love this song. And he uh, linked to uh, the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter from the video for Gimme Shelter. But I mean, just a really, really nice, respectful, you know, three tweets just to show, you know, how much he appreciated Charlie Watts from, you know, the person, you know, as, as we always joke, Bill's a drummer and, and Mickey's a percussionist, but from the Grateful Dead's drummer, right? Right. <laughs> No, that's true. And, and look, I've always admired Bill and Mickey because I thought that they took drumming from just another part of a rock and roll show and gave it its own independent identity and gave it its own life. And, you know, drums could either be the perfect time to, you know, to run out and get a soft drink and go to the bathroom. Or if you were in the right frame of mind, it could be the peak of the entire evening for you. Uh, you know, depending on what kind of drum performance they were putting on. And that was the beauty of it. You know, they were artists, and they loved to just get back there and make wonderful sounds. You know, Charlie Watts, obviously, uh, playing with the Rolling Stones was in a different type of framework in the way that they played. But nevertheless, uh, you know, just in, you know, in terms of pure drumming talent, and yeah, of course, it's wonderful to hear a guy like Kreutzmann say that. And, uh, you know, if, if not going to respect Bill Kreutzmann's position, for God's sakes, whose opinion is going to be good enough for you? Right, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you to Charlie Watts for all you did, and you'll be missed. Absolutely on that. It's a big loss for rock and roll, and, and I have to tell you, you know, certainly for me, you know, to, to be at a point in time where, you know, somebody of the Rolling Stones has died, okay, and I mean, not an accidental death when they were young, but having lived a long, full life, and 
you know, I think that it, it shows a little mortality in all of us that these guys who you just imagine as superhuman and somehow even at 80 years old are still playing rock concerts, right? Phil is out there in his 80s playing it. And as long as they're doing that, uh, you know, it gives me wonderful feelings about what's still to come with the rest of my life. Heck, you know, that, that still gives me another good 20, 30 years. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I love it. I think it's wonderful to see. And um, I'm just sorry that he won't be around. The one thing that I didn't read about or, or take from that, maybe you have heard, are they planning to continue with their tour? Do they have a backup drummer in place? I, I haven't heard that either, but I think right now, you know, kind of the expression too soon would apply. Yep. Um, you know, I think I'm sure we'll get a statement from the band here in the coming days. But uh, for now, I think that, you know, it's, it's probably better to appreciate the legacy he leaves behind and, you know, thoughts and, and wishes to his family and to his friends um, and to the musical community in general that, you know, he surrounded himself with. But um, I'm sure there's some sort of a tribute that the, uh, the Dead & Co. will be, you know, if they haven't already said something on stage, I, I can't imagine they won't. But, uh, you know, speaking of those guys, they've been doing some really cool stuff recently. So I don't know if you've been watching what's been happening on tour. I have, and I'll let you talk about it in a second. But when you said that about Dead & Co., I just think that was the one. I never caught a satisfaction. I was there when they were doing satisfaction, and I always just missed the show. with this, You know, you, sometimes they did it as a double encore. And I just, for some reason, never quite caught up with it. And then they stopped playing it. But, you know, I love listening to the tapes of it. Uh, you know, they really, they have the beat down. Jerry's wailing on the guitar. Bobby's, you know, doing his best Mick impression. And not so bad. But, yeah, they, they picked up on that beat back then, and they knew exactly what to do with it. So that would be wonderful. But please tell us the big news about what just went down in Bethel the other night. So uh, several nights ago, and when this uh, actually airs, it'll have been almost a week ago if that had happened. But... The um, Dead & Co. played in Bethel, New York recently, and that's the, obviously the home of Woodstock, and they decided to uh, surprise the audience, and they actually recreated the entire set that they played from, from Woodstock in 69 and played the, uh, the set exactly as, as written back then. So very rare. I mean, that's something I expect Fish to do. You know, Fish is really creative sometimes their set list, and it's very much, you know, something that, um, that Dark Star Orchestra would do. But, you know, to have Dead & Co. do it where they say, we're going to recreate a show and we're going to play that show again, you know, set list uh, song for song, is it, something that I think is really creative, especially given, you know, how different the lineup is with John Mayer and with O'Teal and with Jeff. You know, it's just a, a really cool way to say, okay, let's take a look back at where we were, you know, however many years ago and, uh, and, and put this one forward again. It's true. I love it when the dead, I mean, the, the Grateful Dead never did anything like that. Um, and Dead & Co., I know for a while was, uh, I don't know if it was Dead & Co. or while they were still calling themselves The Dead or whatever, but one tour they were going around and they were playing various albums. Uh, maybe they were just doing it in San Francisco because I had a friend who went one night and saw them do uh, Oxamoxa and uh, Bear's Choice. No, no, no Oxamoxa and working and, and uh, Live Dead. And I, you know, my first thought was, wow, you heard St. Stephen twice. But, you know, I love the idea every now and then of, of somebody playing albums or developing a theme it's great that they did it and you know what what makes me laugh is that you know bob weir's quote supposedly was something along the lines of well this time we got it right which speaks to at least when the dead tell the story how what they feel in such an utter disaster their performance at woodstock was because of the weather and i love bobby's stories about how the entire stage was electric and every time they touched their guitar they'd get electric shocks and if they stepped up to the microphone they would get an electric shock and you know they just tried to kind of soldier their way through because people were there to hear them but after a while it just got to be too much and they yeah they, they played basically a five song set and uh and they were gone 
So he said, this time we got it right. So, you know, different circumstances and all of that. But it was fun to see because you're right, they did. They recreated the uh, the set St. Stephen, Mama Tried, Dark Star, High Time, and Love Light, which was fairly typical for that for that time period. Mama Tried might be slightly out of place there, but everything else was right in line with what they were playing in 69. Yeah, for sure. So I think it would have been a lot of fun to have, to have been in that audience the other night and, uh, and watch them do it. So it is something that... Uh, it's a really nice way to go back and listen to the original and then listen to this version and say, okay, you know, how does it sound? Uh, you know, is it better today than it was back then? Because I think, you know, the members of, uh, of bands oftentimes don't get the credit for progressing in their craft as they've getting older and older. And, you know, sometimes bands do hit peaks. Other times, you know, they, they just keep going. And, you know, as you said, with a performance that wasn't one of their greatest, like it wasn't at Woodstock, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this performance was significantly better than the original. Right, you know, absolutely, and uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's fun. The one thing I don't know, and I wasn't able to get, maybe you know if you were talking to people who were there, is whether they announced in advance that this is what they were doing, or whether they waited to tell people after they were done, because I got to tell you, you know, I mean, I follow them, and I have, I, I have a, a bootleg CD of their Woodstock performance, but I don't know that I would necessarily, you know, start to hear St. Stephen, Mama Tried and put it all together that quickly. Yeah, I wouldn't either. And I, I don't know whether or not it was announced either. But uh, but certainly, obviously, some people picked up on it and said, hey, I know the set list. Right. Well, there's always a few of those people in the crowd. And I just basically rely on them to, you know, tell the rest of us what's going on. So it makes me wonder, um, now we're talking about the Rolling Stones and, you know, Dead & Company, whether or not Dead & Company covers any Rolling Stones songs. Because looking back on it, I think the Grateful Dead, to my knowledge, only covered three that I can think of. Being, you know, satisfaction being one, the, uh, the last time being another, and uh, it's all over now being the third. But I can't really think of, um, of too many other Rolling Stones tunes. I mean, they covered songs the Rolling Stones played, like A Little Red Rooster or some other blues songs, but I mean, that was a Willie Dixon song originally. You know, there's definitely other ones that they both played, but they're usually old blues covers. Well, Jerry covered a few. He covered Let's Spend the Night Together, the Jerry Garcia band. What, what, what a great first set closer that was. Yep. Was that the only one he covered? I feel like there was another one too for him, but I can't remember. But yeah, I, I think that those were it. But they were, they were great tunes, you know. And the last time, of course, was you know, oh, you know, maybe they're figuring out what's going on in their lives. Who knows? But uh, it was always fun when they picked these tunes up and ran with them and everything. You know, we really enjoyed them, especially because they're not the obvious ones you think they'd play. Like I always thought there'd be songs, you know, Rolling Stones covers they'd play that. I always thought, like, Can't You Hear Me Knocking would be a great one. Sure. You know, it's, uh, that you know, they could actually put the energy into. But the ones they did pick were kind of obscure songs in the catalog outside of Satisfaction. Right, that's true. You know, or Loving Cup, I guess. But, you know, Fish has pretty much nailed that one for themselves now. So, uh, and uh, you know, look, it's any, any Rolling Stones. I could hear Fish play that song a hundred times, you know, and I love the way Fish plays it. But, it, you know, you just, it still reminds me of sitting in my dorm room listening to Exile on Main Street. You know, and that was one of the songs that were like you'd have to listen to twice in a row, and then you just let it keep playing after that. But you know, it was so good you couldn't you couldn't skip it. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a great night uh, for Dead and Company fans and for folks who were there. And the good news is that with modern technology, there's all sorts of copies of it. In fact, I, I saw an article uh, that popped up on my uh, my my phone feed today, uh, where I uh, when I was driving in, I was able to activate it and listen to part of that while I was uh, part of their. Uh, playing that those songs last night so i'll go back and listen to the whole thing but yeah it's just fun and you know i always sit there and think you know what, what what's a guy like bob we're thinking right now you know i mean he's basically he was there 52 years ago or whatever it was now and you know that's like a lot of time in life you know to go by and, and here you are kind of standing in the same place more or less you know recreating what you did back then i 
you know, it's amazing that they could be around to do it, you know, that many years later and that they have the talent and the ability and the skill and the the drive and the health and everything else you need to be able to get up there. And, you know, the only thing missing, of course, is it would, how wonderful it would have been to have Phil up there with him. But, you know, O'Teal holds his own. So I don't think, you know, I don't think uh, people were shortchanged all that much. Yeah. Speaking of which, happy birthday to O'Teal. I think it was his birthday um, on August 24th. So I don't think we had a chance to say it yet, but, uh, you know, what a great addition to the team and what a great addition to the band. And so nice to have him as part of it, but uh, happy birthday, O'Teal. Yeah, really just, uh, you know, it, it was funny because when he was with the Allman Brothers, I realized that he was the the, the bass player, but I, I, I can't say that I, I focused on him very much. I was too busy looking at, you know, Warren and Derek up front doing their thing and Greg Whalen from behind the B3. And now I go back and I listen to a lot of that Allman Brothers stuff and I really appreciate uh, his bass play and everything he's doing on that. But, I, you know, he, he's great. He's like... Uh, He's like, you know, the great bass player, and he's got a wonderful voice. And, you know, he, he does comes a time as well. Well, I won't say as well yeah. as Jerry. And Chinadol. Yeah, but he, he really has some of those tunes down pretty well. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, he's he's now become as much of the, you know, as the dead family as any of those guys. And uh, he, he's a great personality. I, you know, I've heard him give interviews a few times, and he's always very positive and upbeat and just a lot of fun to listen to. I think it's so funny that the, the last sort of iteration of the Allen Brothers produced some of the hardest working people in show business, whether it's Warren Haynes or whether it's Derek Trucks or whether it's uh, O'Teal, that those guys, not only do they play with everyone, like everyone wants to play with them. You know, like they're invited to play with so many other bands. And for a while there, like, you know, you couldn't see a show anywhere that Warren Haynes wasn't somehow like coming up on stage or inviting people on stage. I didn't know how that guy did what he did for about five or six years there. He was putting out more work than any person I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, testament to kind of, you know, the Alvin Brothers of just, you know, finding great musicians that ultimately everyone else wants to play with as well. And so it's, uh, you know, a, a tough thing to do. I think Pank has done that with Jimmy Herring as well, where Jimmy was everywhere for a while. I agree about Warren Haynes. I've always said I think he's the hardest rocking man in the business. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, and, I think, yeah. and I think Derek is the best guitar player in the business. And Derek, I mean, Derek fell into their lap. He was, he was jamming with them when he was 10 years old. I love those pictures of him as a 10-year-old up there standing next to Dickie Betts. And they're like yeah. trade licks with each other. It's just I, amazing. I, I paid for a ticket to see him the first time when he was 13. <laughs> yeah, like that's crazy to me. I actually bought a ticket to see Derek Trucks play at age thirteen, playing a tiny club in in uh, North Carolina called the Cat's Cradle, which is in um, Chapel Hill. I cannot get enough of him, and I'll go to see him anywhere, anytime, any band he's playing with or not playing. He's just, he's great, and I and I just love that. So, yep, wonderful with O'Teal and everything. Uh, so Dead and Companies, you know, they're really on fire. You know, the tour continues. Uh, I'm going to catch their shows here at Wrigley Field, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you know, just getting back together with some of the old dead gang and uh, trudging out there a couple of nights, hope for some good weather and uh, and see what they throw our way. Nice. J-Rad's on fire, too. I was just going to say, man, <laughs> J-Rad is smoking. And I know you and I were just chatting about the show this past Monday night out in Boston. My, my oldest son, who's actually getting married a week from Sunday, uh, Matthew, to his lovely fiance Elena, uh, were taken to the show as a wedding uh, present by our good friends, Alex and Andy, uh, Alex Wellens and Andy Greenberg. Andy Greenberg, of course, of um, Society Jane and Alex of, you know, Grateful Dead, show lore and, and legend. Uh, and they were out there uh, on the East Coast visiting relatives and were kind enough uh, to take my son and his fiance uh, to see J-Rad. Uh, for my son, it was his first uh, live show since the pandemic started. 
Um, and then when the weather got bad and they got pushed to Monday, Andy and Alex, like troopers, came through and they were still there and they all went Monday night. We started getting texts and photos. And uh, uh, I'm not familiar with the venue. I know you are. But, uh, you know, they said it was just pouring on Monday night, but they're all covered, so it was okay. And uh, well worth it. Said so that they just uh, just blew the house down. It was just a great show. So, so I have been to that venue a bunch of times. It's one of my favorite outdoor venues in the country because it's tiny. It's a three thousand person tent. It's um, pretty much all covered. There's a little veranda in the back area, but it's right next to um, Harpoon Brewery, and it's in the uh, the waterfront district of um, of Boston, which for a long time was undeveloped, and now it's you know the hottest part of the city. But it's um, right along the water. So on one side of the venue, it drops right into the harbor. And uh, on the other side of the venue, it's, you know, kind of um, industrial. But uh, but great shows there all the time. I've seen so many fun bands there. I've seen Panic play there a bunch of times. Um, I've seen, I think I've seen Tedeschi Trucks play there before. You know, you, you name this sort of the mid-tier, mid-sized bands. Like, I've seen, like, Weezer play there and uh, Ween play there. And just a handful of other bands that kind of play to that, you know, three to 5,000 person range. And if you get a chance, it's uh, it's just a terrific venue. You're looking right at the skyline of Boston, and uh, it's good acoustics, and it's just a, a, a great spot. So super cool. Yeah, they raved about it, and, you know, I was very happy for him. I was a little envious. I always love to see Jay Rad whenever I can, and uh, we don't have them coming through Chicago at the moment, but hopefully we'll get them soon and uh, have a chance to go see them too. They're, you know, I, I love Dead and Company, but... I don't think anybody plays the 11 better than J-Rad right now. I'm just going to go out there and say that, right. not even Bobby. So I don't think anyone's playing guitar better than Tom Hamilton when it comes to Grateful Dead music. So it's, I think right now that that guy has just got it so finely tuned, and I know when I saw him play with the, you know, the Garcia Birthday Band or whatever you want to call that iteration, he was as good as anyone. And you know his, his vocal stylings as well, uh, amazing. That entire band is so fun to see, and they're so energetic, and they're so inventive as to um, you know, how they're going to play the music. But, uh, you know, I got sent the, uh, the intro to the Eyes of the World the other night from a buddy of mine who was at the show, and it was terrific. And I heard the China Rider was the, uh, the highlight of the night. And just, you know, I think they ended up having to cut the show short because of uh, the weather, but by only, only by a couple songs. I think they skipped a, a tune or two and then skipped the encore. So it was pretty much a full show, but, uh, but everyone that I know that went, you know, came back saying it was as good as anything they've seen in a long time. Yeah, they do a great job with that. They really, really uh, play those songs well. And, you know, anytime you have a band that's centered around a drummer, you know it's going to be a good band, right? I mean, they always tend to be just a little bit eccentric and a little whatever. And, you know, Joe Russo fits that mode. And, uh, you know, he's become you know his own way part of the Dead family too. And, uh, you know, the, the drummer of demand when they go that route, you know, if it's not Molo or whatever, if it's not Mickey and... Uh, and uh, Bill, there's always uh, there's always Joe Russo, and, and and he's great. So a lot of fun to hear him and, and, and what they do. Glad my son and his fiance got to go, and uh, I'll be looking for them the next time they come through town. You want to talk about some weed? I was just going to say, man, we we should talk about some weed for five minutes because that is the other part of our name, and uh, we still have a lot more dead to go. But let's let's just dive into this really fast. Uh, we have a couple of big things going on. The first is with Instagram, and there's stories popping up, and uh, one in particular that I saw on MJ Biz uh, yesterday or today, uh, specifically talking about this problem, that Instagram is shutting down or suspending a number of accounts that have marijuana content to them. And, you know, they say that the uh, the promotion of the sale of cannabis products 
is not allowed on that platform. That you, know, you can't talk about, um, you can talk about cannabis, but you can't say anything that might induce someone to go out and buy it. So that's kind of a nebulous standard, in my opinion. And I'm not even really sure why it's necessary unless they're concerned that somehow the, the federal government might think that they're aiding and abetting the sale of cannabis. But I got to tell you, at least the last time I checked, you can go on YouTube and get step-by-step instructions on how to make extract. So what's going on here, Rob? First of all, what do they care? Right. I mean, honestly, like, what, what do any of these companies care? This isn't a question of like aiding and abetting. This isn't a question of, you know, it's, it's an internal policy that's being set up without any justification as to why they're doing it. It's like, okay, at this point, we all know where the, uh, the, the law is moving. We all know the inevitability of, of where we're going. There's absolutely no point in shutting down accounts and, you know, and then having people then, essentially, they're going to come right back onto your platform anyway. They're going to build up the audience one more time. It's this cat and mouse game where everybody loses. It doesn't make any sense at all. No one can ever give a justification as to why they've been deplatformed. So it's gone back and forth. It's not, not just Instagram. Facebook did it for a long time. I used to try to you know, work with clients who are Facebook advertising. We all know they were getting shut down. It, it's all the social media platforms. I mean, right now, the only one I can think of that's actually really embracing cannabis is Clubhouse. Instagram, find me a justification for, for why they are doing what they're doing. I, I can't think of one. I can't either, and, and, and that's what really bothers me. Uh, you know, if, if they think that this is a matter of, you know, well, this is good public policy, we don't want to be seen as the people endorsing cannabis, my question is, why not? And not to mention, like, the, whole, the whole medium is geared for the cannabis industry, of taking pictures of your buds and taking pictures of your extracts and really being able to show off. Like, I, when I actually want to go to a page, if it's not the website of the actual company itself, but I really want to see what it is that they do, the first place I go is Instagram. But for that, I would never ever use Instagram for any other reason. Like I'm not a, a you know, a 19 year old where Insta is kind of like my social media of choice. Like I never started using Instagram. The only reason I use it at all is because I want to see cannabis pictures like or, or nug porn or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I, I, and I agree, you know, it, 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 and you know, sometimes you wonder is a company like this, you know, going to cut off its nose and spite its face as a result, you know, and, 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 and wind up with decreased, user numbers. I have no idea, but I, I just can't understand the purpose of it. You know, what, that the, some local county prosecutor somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon line is going to wake up one day and issue a subpoena against them or, you know, try to indict them on something? I, I just don't, I'm, I'm at a loss for it. And it's like, it, you're, you're, you're fighting an, up, an upstream battle here. It's, it's, it's here, it's now, why not make your platform cannabis friendly? If you want to set some rules up, find rules. You can't make direct sales over my platform. That seems reasonable. But, you know, everything else, I have a client and he wanted to be able to, on his own property, uh, he, he's involved in, in vape manufacturing, and he wanted to be able to, uh, uh, but he's a science guy. So he was out in this little golf cart, and he stopped, and he was in the sun, and he leaned outside so the sun was shining on him, and he had a pipe, and to light the pipe, he used a magnifying glass and re- reflected the light into the pipe, and and it was just to, you know, make a point about, refraction of light and the power of the sun and blah 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 he calls me up can i put that on the, out on the internet am i going to get in trouble for that you're in a state that allows adults to smoke marijuana you're on your own property i don't see why you would get in trouble for that but you know of course i can't speak to whatever platform he's using might say or do and you know it, it really becomes you know why would i don't understand why people would ever be concerned about something like that but yet they are to the point where this guy has to be concerned it just seems, I don't know, like a big waste of energy for everybody. 
Yeah, it always makes me wonder, and, you know, not to blame our profession, Larry, but it's usually the attorneys that make these decisions. It's, you know, someone that's sitting in their compliance department within Instagram saying, okay, well, let's, you know, let's talk about this. And someone says, okay, for, you know, for the safety of the business, the smartest thing we can do is to deplatform, you know, these people, which, you know, they're correct in their assessment. It doesn't mean it's the right answer. It, it's the, I mean, anytime I've got a client that says, you know, can I get in trouble for saying anything campus related? My first answer is yes. You know, right. technically you still can. But, you know, having said that, in the spectrum of, you know, where you fall in the priority list of enforcement, you are like literally at the furthest end of the illegality spectrum that anything is at this point. So if you're saying, you know, right. okay, like, is it illegal? Yes. Do I have anything to worry about? Potentially. Should I worry about it? Probably not. Right. You know, and, and that's why people should be thinking about it. And they should be thinking about it from the perspective, as long as you're not doing anything that's um, overtly illegal uh, within the confines of your state, you know, then very likely you're not going to have any issues um, with anyone. And uh, when it comes to a social media platform, that all they're doing is, um, you know, putting forward a recorded history of what other other people are doing. I can't imagine that they should have any any issues at all. And it's literally just some guy in the compliance department's like, well, that might be true, but you know, we're a multi billion dollar company. It's it's just an asinine way to look at this. Well, I don't disagree, and you know that's the problem with some of this. That you know, eventually some of these companies are going to have to, you know, bring in new people. You know, they're going to need attorneys like you or I who come in and have an appreciation and understanding for what this is all about, and yet at the same time respect it and aren't trying to make a big joke out of it. You know, but I think there would be advantage for a lot of companies right now to want to be out there taking the lead on this. There's there's a whole universe of cannabis users we know we see the numbers we know how many cannabis users there are you know if you're the first platform that jumps out and says um you know okay i'm gonna do this i think that's a wonderful thing you become the leader and everybody follows you yep i would agree with that so let's just uh go on record on this show saying instagram we disagree with your policy and you know we think you should put uh cannabis companies back on and, uh, and quite honestly, I, I hope that people do leave the platform if, if this is an important topic for them to make Instagram wake up. So, you know, if you're out there, I mean, I'm not I'm not a cancel culture kind of guy. I think everyone should do what they you know want to do. But at the same time, I, I, I vote with my wallet and I certainly don't um, you know support companies that don't support the things I believe in. So, you know, if I was a serious Instagram user, I would probably consider walking away from that platform right now. Fortunately, I'm not. So it doesn't doesn't matter much to me. <laughs> Yep, they'll do what they have to do, and, you know, the market will tell them in a year or two or three if they were right or wrong. Also in marijuana, we had a, uh, a big issue that just came up uh, with TrueLeave, and uh, I'm going to let you tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll preface it by saying it's, you know, in many ways a non-issue, and it's, it's something that everyone was wondering whether it would be an issue. So I'm going to set this up by saying that this came to light several years ago, but the, the CEO of TrueLeave is a, a gal named Kim Rivers, who's been a terrific CEO for TrueLeave, is opened up near 100 stores in the Florida market and is now you know, finalizing the acquisition of Harvest, uh, which right now is very close to finalizing. It's already gotten through the Hart Scott Regina review. You know, she's opening up new markets in Massachusetts and others as well. So, you know, this is a real company. And if you look at, you know, in terms of uh, earnings per share, I think, you know, from an EPS perspective, it's probably the most successful company in cannabis today. But several years ago, it came out that her husband was being indicted and being indicted on, you know, some pretty serious charges. So the question was, you know, is this going to have a, um, an impact on TrueLeave or is TrueLeave going to be implicated, you know, in this? And throughout the entire ordeal, call it the last, you know, three years, her husband, a guy named J.T. Burnett, 
It was always maintained by the company that there was no nexus between anything that JT had done or TrueLeave. And more importantly, that there was a great deal of support from TrueLeave saying that, you know, what he did, he had not done or what they claimed he had done. So the, the belief, even as recently as several months ago, was, you know, real support from the company saying we think he's going to be exonerated um, and there's nothing to worry about here. Well, you know, last week the jury came back and he was, you know, guilty of five of nine federal charges, including public corruption, including, you know, travel act violation, lying to the government, extortion, honest services, mail fraud, not, not small charges, you know, ones that if you actually look at the sentencing guidelines for, um, for, you know, what he could be sentenced for, you know, some of these carry 20 year sentences on each one. Now, do I think he's going to, you know, end up serving a hundred years? No, I think the guy will probably go to club fed for a period of time and end up, you know, going on house arrest after that and wearing a, uh, an anklet for a while. But, you know, these are, these are serious charges. The, the question in the cannabis industry is, you know, was there any, um, you know, corruption that was going to flow through to true leaf? And so, that's what everyone's been watching for. And I can tell you that I've been getting a lot of phone calls from, you know, sort of uh, the, the Wall Street bankers saying, hey, you know, do you know anything about this? And, you know, how should we be playing this thing? And how should we be thinking about it from a public market standpoint, especially because truly share price has been, you know, down from, I think, a high of $52 back in March down to, I think it's trading at like, you know, 27 or 28 bucks right now. So you can look at saying, okay, well, is, is this having any impact? But the, the fact of the matter is, you know, every canvas company since its highs in February or March has had a, a nice slow slide down off those highs. Um, Truly hasn't suffered really too much more than the others. And ultimately, you know, the, the market has not um, penalized uh, the company for, you know, the actions of JT Burnett. So I, I think this in many ways is a, a good news story to the industry that, you know, just because there's smoke somewhere doesn't mean there's fire. Um, there shouldn't be a knee-jerk, you know, sell reaction based on something. When the convictions came out, it wasn't, you know, you didn't see truly share price drop by 15% the way you would, like, you know, when the BP oil spill happened, that, you know, BP shares immediately went down. Um, so in that way, it's a, um, it's not a terrible story. The one thing I will say that everyone was watching closely is, you know, would truly be subpoenaed? Would truly have to testify? Would truly um, uh, be implicated in any way throughout this process? And the answer is they weren't. They weren't charged. They weren't asked to, um, to, to come and, and speak uh, as a result. But what we were watching is, did anything come in um, with respect to the actions that JT Burnett had uh, with respect to the Florida cannabis? And there, you know, in, in the uh, testimony, it came up that he had bragged uh, to undercover FBI agents that he'd worked on um, with a state legislature, legislator in 2014 to uh, change the medical cannabis license criteria which would prevent you know, certain competitors from winning permits, which was obviously to the benefit of his wife and to Trulief. So we were wondering whether or not that was going to come into play. So all said and done, big story, big story that you know, I don't think it has a huge implication on the, uh, on the industry. And more importantly, the shareholders of Trulief, I don't think has a huge implication to Trulief itself. Okay. You know, the, the thought that I have on all of this is something that I've said before, and I think it, it really holds true now. On the one hand, you know, I could see where this is potentially, uh, you know, a problem for a company like TrueLeave. Obviously, even if, if even if the, the harm doesn't spill over onto them, uh, it, it, they still get splashed by it a little bit. But on the other hand, what does that say to me? It says that, look, guys, the cannabis industry is in a place where the kind of stuff that happens to other companies is happening to it. And sometimes those things are good things and sometimes those things are bad things. But even when they're bad things, it, 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 it demonstrates that, you know, this industry is, is not immune from any of the other risks or stuff that any other industry has. And as people in this industry, we should be actually be happy about that. 
you know, that we're not a carve out, that we don't play by different rules than everybody else, that, you know, we're, we're you know, cannabis businesses, we, we've talked about some of these that are, you know, approaching billions of dollars in, in exchanged funds and consideration for the sales of businesses and licenses. I mean, we're not, this is, this is far from the day of buying a dime bag from your local dealer in high school, right? This is industrial America at its finest and who knows where it's going to stop at the rate that it's going. You know, the numbers that were being projected a few years ago and people thought, oh, there's, those are so pie in the sky, we'll never hit those. Now many people are starting to laugh at those numbers as being ridiculously small, you know, in terms of where this industry can be. So, you know, as a member of the industry, I'm very happy that uh, True Leave is not affected by this and that it's not going to cause uh, any significant hiccups in our industry. But on the other hand, like I say, welcome to the big leagues. Yeah, yeah, and, and the fact that it, you know, if anyone doesn't understand what Hart Scott Rodino is, it's basically the Treasury Department's review of a, of a merger or acquisition that involves you know two relatively large businesses, which in the case of the True Leaf and um, and Harvest uh, merger, it, it certainly does. So with this thing pending before the guilty verdict came out, uh, for it to get through HSR review during that period, you know, shows that um, that you know a, a small issue isn't going to sink a cannabis company anymore, and now cannabis companies have legal representation as good as any other big business out there to make sure that their um, their business gets done. So, you know, we are we are in a new era of, you know, what the power of some of the larger companies is and truly this clearly, you know, what I like to call the big four, one of those big four companies um, with a multi-billion dollar market cap. So, you know, please know that a company that size is going to have uh, access to the best legal representation they can and make sure that their, uh, their business is going to continue to scale to the benefit of their shareholders. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. We need to move on again, though, because uh, we only have so much time. You and I could sit here and talk all night, but that wouldn't be fair to Dan. And at some point, our listeners might actually fall asleep just getting tired of listening to our voice. So we have to move on to the music. And the music that we're going to talk about today is a Grateful Dead show from 1985 at the Starlight Theater in Kansas City. But in true Grateful Dead fashion, uh, when I mean by true Grateful Dead fashion, I mean... When you bump into a good buddy who you haven't seen for years outside of a show, you know, you're going to see them in RFK Stadium or somewhere where there's 90,000 people, and you guys talk for five minutes, hey, man, it's great to see you. I hope I see you around, and you walk in, they've got the seat next to you, right? That's the kind of Grateful Dead karma I'm talking about here. So September 3rd is a day that is just filled with Grateful Dead history. September 3rd, 1977, we have one of the most famous all-time Grateful Dead shows. English Town. English Town, which we have talked about on this show before. You can listen to all of it and all of its glory on Dick's Picks number 15. Uh, our guest, Jay Blakesburg, a dead photographer, uh, or the dead photographer who has been on our show a couple of times, uh, often talks about English Town. That was his first show. In fact, English Town, the only show that I know that could rival English Town uh, for first-time shows for Hardcore Deadheads is a show that they played in December 1979 in Chrysler Arena in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And scores and scores of guys who I met when I got there the next year who were all Deadheads, all that was the first time they ever saw the Dead. So every now and then you get one of those shows that just gives birth to a, a large number of new heads, and English Town is certainly certainly one of them. But we're not going to focus on English Town today. Go listen to Dick's Picks 15 and enjoy it for yourself, and we'll talk about it some other time. September 3rd, 
1988. Ripple. In the Cap uh, Look at this. He's picking up on the trend. In the Cap Center in Washington, D.C., uh, the Dead came out and played a second encore, and it was an electric ripple, the last electric ripple they ever played, the last ripple I think the Grateful Dead as a band ever played. It was. And um, the, the story that I've always heard that I like to go with was that it was done in response to a Make-A-Wish request um, from some deadhead who really wanted to hear it. And by God, the boys came through and in, 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 in all their glory. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a wonderful version of Ripple. You should listen to it and just appreciate uh, the, the response from the crowd when they realize what, what the band is doing. And like all good breakouts, you know, when Jerry sings for the first time, they start screaming. When they get to the chorus, they start screaming. This is like, you know... Dead Nirvana all of a sudden, boy. You know, playing Ripple live on electric. It doesn't get much better than that. Were, were you there for that one, Larry? You were, right? I was not there for that one, in fact. So you and I both missed English Town. We both missed Cap Center. I missed Starlight Theater, Kansas. We're going to get to that. Yeah, one of us was there. I was there. Cap Center, though, was, and this is where things get funny, that was the night of my rehearsal dinner when my wife and I got married. And I had a bunch of my East Coast deadhead buddies who were in Evanston, Illinois with me at the Orrington Hotel at my parents' rehearsal dinner. And sometime late in the night, I don't know how they found out because nobody had cell phones back then, but somebody called somebody who got the scoop. And they all came running around screaming, the dead played Ripple, the dead played Ripple. And all these guys were just completely bummed out that they were sitting in my rehearsal dinner and not stumbling out of the uh, the cap center. So now carry forward. So so, so, so hold on. I'm going to ask our producer with a show of thumbs up or thumbs down. you think that's a good enough excuse for Larry to have missed the cap center show? Do you think rehearsal dinner cuts it? All right. Dan, Dan's going to go with a thumbs up. I'm, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give it to you. The, the, the story's a strong one, Larry, so uh, <laughs> we'll let it slide. Okay, well, here it goes. Uh, next weekend, or this coming weekend, I guess, uh, my son is getting married in Atlanta. And on Friday over Labor Day weekends, which, of course, conflicts directly with Dick's. And all of his buddies are all huge fish heads. And last year, they thought they were going to have to miss it all. It got canceled. This year, oh, my God, they realized we are going to have to miss it all. Um, and in speaking with them, I, I know that they have their disappointment in that. But Friday, I told anybody who's a fish head, go to the Friday night, September 3rd show because that's the night that people have to blow off to come to my son's Friday night dinner or whatever as part of the beginning of his wedding weekend. That's got to be a night, if tradition holds true, when Fish is just going to come out and do something insane that everybody's going to... I know they say don't miss a Sunday show. Don't miss September 3rd at, at Dick's. That's going to be a big night. So simply because Larry's kid can't make it. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Uh, yeah, look, the, the shows you know you're going to miss are always the ones that are great, which is the irony of our guest last week talking about those Oxford Plains shows in Maine because those were meant to be my first shows. And at last second, my parents pulled the plug when they found out I was going to go up there and camp for the weekend, and somehow my tickets got given away to some other kid. Um, so, yeah, and those were great shows. So uh, I know the feeling of the ones you miss are inevitably always the ones that are terrific. But I did not miss... September 3rd, 1985 at the Starlight Theater. And it was just one of those nights when everything comes together. It was the start of my second year of law school at the University of Missouri. And the University of Missouri was an interesting place for me to go to law school because I'd done undergrad in Ann Arbor, where I think it's probably fair to say that among my circle of friends, I was seen as very middle of the road. And a few of them maybe even privately thought of me as being just a little right of center because, you know, some of my politics didn't necessarily line up with with theirs. Okay, no problem. Then I went down to Columbia, Missouri, and all of a sudden I was pretty much it on the left-hand side. I, it, there was nobody farther to the left 
than I was. And a bunch of kids came from the Bible Belt and uh, southeastern part of the state, the southwestern part of the state, uh, where where alcohol is frowned upon and other types of stimulants and, and things like that are frowned upon. And uh, I quickly became known in that group as the guy who nobody could believe, right? You know, I was Jewish, I smoked marijuana, and I liked to play hacky sack. And they couldn't understand any of it. Uh, they teased me for playing hacky sack, called say I was playing drug ball. Um, and they'd laugh at me for listening to the great dead and you know wonder why I hadn't been arrested and thrown in jail for the rest of my life for smoking marijuana and on September 3rd 1985 I took a group of four of them with me to the Starlight Theater in Kansas City and I couldn't get them to engage in the uh, lovely psilocybin uh, event that I was engaging in but nevertheless by the end of the night I had four converts and for the rest of my time at the University of Missouri in Columbia uh, it was a rare day when we weren't outside before class all playing hacky sack. Uh, it was a rare time when one of them wasn't asking to borrow one of my Grateful Dead albums. And it got to the point where our regular end of final exam celebrations were usually at my place listening to Grateful Dead all night and doing other things. And uh, it, it was, uh, if you ever want to know whether or not the Grateful Dead can change people, yes, the answer is absolutely yes. I've seen it, it's unbelievable. Rob, this was the show to do it. It was a beautiful summer night. It's outdoor theater. There's no roof at all. It's not a shed. It wasn't crowded. It was in the Midwest. It was kind of an awkward place to get to if you were on summer tour. Uh, And for us, it was barely two hours away. So we all loaded up in the car, drove over there, got in, and really could have sat almost anywhere in the pavilion that we wanted, but stayed more towards the back just to give ourselves a maximum amount of room. And the first set itself was, you know, as solid of a first set, I think, as you could ever hope to get. Yeah. Um, you know. it, it's good. I mean, it came out strong with the, I think it was a stranger opener. Yep. But then it uh, then it kind of went into like a mellow period with like the They Love Each Other and a Little Red Rooster and a Dire Wolf. Uh, and then I think, um, what was after that? There was... Uh, Cassidy, Big Railroad. Yeah. Yep. And then and then kicked it back up a notch at the end with the music and Donies. Right. But I mean, the middle of that set, from the They Love Each Other all the way through the Big Railroad, that's a pretty mellow, like, five-song combo. I mean, it's good jammy stuff in the Cassidy. Uh, the Dire Wolf has a little action, but, you know, They Love Each Other, Rooster, and Big Railroad are all, all pretty mellow, you know, pretty mellow songs. They are. And, and, and you know, it was, it, I, 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 I understand and I agree. And, and at the time, I'm sure for other reasons as well, you know, we just, it, it, they just rolled. And uh, the, the, the set break, you know, we were just bouncing around waiting for them to come back out. And as a, as a, uh, prequel to this story, I had been at the uh, 85 Greek theater shows when they, they had the 20th anniversary and they broke out cryptical for the first time in about, boy, I don't know, 13, 14 years. I think they had last played it in 72. And in the middle of the second set, uh, the uh, the third night after a Scarlet Fire opener and something else in between, they went into a cryptical and brought the place down. And they came out to start the second set. And, you know, as soon as you hear the first note, you know what it is. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, here they go. They're doing cryptical again. This is incredible. Uh, You know, the guys who I was with, they just enjoyed the music. They couldn't even begin to appreciate the significance of what they were hearing. Um, But it it just it started a second set, Rob, that you've seen the set list. I've never been to a show. I've I've heard the tape a thousand times. It was, uh, you know, that's another one of those tapes that I wore out. I was so happy this is the uh, the show you wanted to talk about today because I absolutely, it's one of my all-time favorite second sets. Everything is a, 
you know, it's one of those nights when everything they play is like, wow, I really, really want to hear this, right? So cryptical into eyes, into I don't need love. So Brent gets his moment uh, out of the space into nobody's fault but mine. What a great song for Jerry yeah. to step up and sing. In, into a truck and into it comes a time. Into a truck and smokestack comes a time. A smoke, that's right, that's right. Bobby slips the smokestack smoke in. It just had that feel all night. You know, it it, it, it almost, you know, the kind of tunes they threw in is almost like that October 89 show at Hampton, you know, when they just were determined to pull out five or six, you know, really, really great tunes and just dump them on you. It comes a time into, into Love Light. I mean, you know, then they went off and, you know, did their Baby Blue Encore, which was fairly standard for the time and played very well. But by that point, it didn't matter. You know, they could have come out and done anything for the encore, not even done an encore. We were just all, you know, we hung out for a little while, got in the car and slowly made our way back to uh, uh, University of Missouri in Columbia. And, you know, it was like the next day, right away, you know, I, I show up for class and they're like, aren't you going to play hacky sack today? And I'm like, you're in boys, let's go. And from that moment on, it was, uh, it was just a wonderful thing. It was a great show, great night. Everybody had a lot of fun. Well, I can see why it's, uh, you know, 85 is the, truly my, probably my most favorite era of the, uh, of the Grateful Dead. I think 85 is such an underlooked year. The way I think 79 is such an underlooked year, uh, or underappreciated, overlooked, I should say. But I think 85 just has so many great highlights. And if you were to say, you know, kind of like when I was really young and, um, you know, starting to think about going to see my first Dead shows, you know, my first show was in 88, which meant that all the tapes we were listening to were, you know, 85, 84, 85, 86. And 86, obviously, there wasn't a huge catalog because of the coma. So 85 was really the year that was just, you know, that got me super fired up about seeing The Grateful Dead. And uh, Starlight Theater was one of the first tapes I owned. I think that and Hershey Park were the, were the first two uh, 85 tapes I listened to all the time. Great shows. It was a tremendous era. I saw some great shows that year. This was certainly one of them. And, uh, yeah, but it just, you know, the way it all came together and, you know, to get to go there with these guys and have them be introduced to the dead in such an awesome setting and such a great set list, you know, it's like, don't ever go to another show. Just let that be your experience and cherish it for the rest of your life because, you know, you can go to 20 or 30 or 40 shows waiting for a night like that where they're they're just clicking on all cylinders and, and they're reaching into the back catalog to pull stuff out. And, um, you know, Jerry had the voice to do it and they had the energy to play it. And, yeah, it, it, it's just outstanding. You know, I, I, I keep waiting for it to be a uh, unofficial band release. You know, if they ever want to, like, release a box set of the 85 Summer Tour and, you know, throw uh, the Greek theater and this and there and a few other things, that would be wonderful. Chula Vista on September 15th is the other one. That was just fire. Yep, yep. They just had a lot of great shows that year. It was, I agree with you, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent year for them. And, uh, you know, their 20th anniversary, they came out swinging and they went all the way through. No doubt. Well, uh, very, very pleased to know that you were at that one, Larry, and you can actually recount uh, what it was like being on the ground for that. Yeah. I always wondered about the theater, so really cool. I didn't realize it was an open air, open air um, spot. I always thought being, you know, called the Starlight Theater. I just expected it was, um, you know, an indoor venue like a Beacon Theater, like you know, your three thousand person sort of Radio City Music Hall style venue. But uh, never, never knew until just now that that was uh, open air. Yep, yep, it was an amazing place. You know, you, everybody, you entered from the back and you walked down to your, you know, to where the seats were. There was no, no tiers or just you know rows of seats from the back all the way down to the front. And you know, we were, you know, maybe two thirds of the way back, and 
had nobody around us, you know, for five or six or seven seats in any direction. It just it was Kansas City. On it. it was a school night, in, you know, like a Wednesday night in Kansas City, Missouri. It was just probably, you know, the most out-of-the-way location for anyone who was on tour with them that summer. So I'm sure it was a, a show that a lot of people wound up skipping, much to their regret. Yep, as Missouri shows tend to be, <laughs> you know, as we talked about before. So a lot of times people say we're just going to skip over Missouri if it's, a, if it's a tour stop, which I think is why they always played smaller venues there. Yep. Well, very cool. So what do we have on tap for next week? Any, anything exciting that we're, uh, we're doing? I know that I think uh, Jim is still on vacation for next week, but um, we're coming into the Labor Day uh, holiday. So lots of fun stuff going on. Um, I'm sure there'll be new cannabis news to report, but what's on tap for the Grateful Dead? Well, the uh, show that I really want to talk about next week is a, and I think you're familiar with this one, is a 1973, September 8th from NASA. Uh, it's Dave's Picks 38, so it was just recently released. Um, and it's just a tremendous, tremendous show uh, from, you know, a year that everybody considers to be one of their best years. Um, so that's out there to talk about. Uh, we'll have um, more reviews from more shows on Dead & Co. and see if they continue this trend of... Uh, you know, being a woke band and, you know, playing songs relevant to the time and the location of where they're playing. I love that about them. Um, I know that Fish uh, is resuming its tour very soon out in the Gorge and then beginning a whole West Coast swing. Um, and that'll be the beginning of their, their tour, the first time when they're going to require proof of vaccination uh, or a negative test. So uh, people who are going to those shows, be aware. I heard that the... Uh, the Dead & Co. shows took a little bit longer for people to get inside because of the uh, proof of vaccination requirement, and I can see where that could be a problem. We're already trying to plan ahead for Wrigley Field, which typically has ridiculously long lines because they only let you into a few of the entrances at a time. And, uh, well, we'll we, we've got a few months to figure it out, so we'll see. But, uh, yeah, lots of good stuff going on out there. Well, until then, um, let's enjoy the last dog days of summer. It's uh, not too many left before Labor Day, which I always kind of consider to be the official end of summer. So uh, hopefully you've had a, a nice one, and hopefully it's still great weather out there in Chicago. And I'm going to try to catch a few more beach days in Southern California before the kids are fully back uh, into the school life sort of swing things and they're out of the summer mentality of wanting to be on the beach every day. Right. But of course, the beauty of where you are is you can make any day a beach day. So that yeah. that's that's a nice thing. Uh, and, you know, here in, in typical Chicago fashion, as we head out of the, uh, you know, the end of the summer and everybody's starting to go back to school, uh, we, we've had our first just absolutely brutal week of, uh, you know, mid to upper 90s, ridiculous humidity, huge thunderstorms at night, and then it just all starts over the next day. And, uh, you know, I mean, as long as you can stay inside, it's fine. Uh, but just walking, you know, from the door of my building out to the car in the parking lot, uh, you know, becomes a very uh, sweaty event. I believe it. I do believe it. Well, look forward to hearing better uh, better weather. Uh, what do they say? A nail retread to your feet and pray for better weather, Larry. Well, that's what I'll and, be doing. Uh, I will be uh, zipping to and from Atlanta for my son's wedding. So, uh, again, shout out to him and his bride. Um, very excited about that. And, uh, yeah, uh, next week I'll be looking forward to more good things to talk about. Well, until then, this is Rob Hunt signing off from Southern California. Before we go, Larry, what do you think? Should we play a little clip as we're uh, as we're heading out from a little bit from the Starlight Theater, maybe a bit of the Eyes of the World, or, or you know some of the uh, that comes of time? Like, what do you think we should uh, play as we're as we're signing off? I think you're right on that. Let's uh, let's throw it on. This intro to Comes of Time is just so beautiful, and uh, you know Jerry plays it so nice. 
so yeah, let's do it a little bit differently this week. Let's let's uh, say goodbye to everybody uh, with a little bit of the Grateful Dead from September 3rd, 1985 at the Starlight Theater. Uh, Larry Mishkin saying goodbye to everyone. We'll talk to you next week and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.